2: The year is 1997 and the good guys dress in black. Remember that the movie men in black.
1: and welcome to Unspooled.
2: Unspooled.
1: I'm Amy Nicholson. And
2: I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. We started with the AFI list, and now we are making our way through different genres and types of films, looking all around the world to find the best possible films. But we are doing something special right now, Amy. We are in the middle of a series called Summer Blockbusters. These are movies that are... A mix, a melange, if you will, of genres. I mean, and the reaction to what we should be doing and why aren't we doing this and is the blockbuster too American. There have been so many uh, great points of view coming in on the Discord. I mean, how how are you feeling about the response so far to what movies we need to cover, what movies we have to get back to? What do you think?
1: Gosh, well, one thing that I'm feeling is... I kind of want to watch everything, and that surprises me because yeah. I tend to mock summer blockbusters. But what I'm realizing is interesting in in the framework of what we're doing is going back, looking at not just the first modern blockbusters, because we already covered all of those. We covered Jaws, we covered Raiders of the Lost Ark, we covered E.T., but figuring out how we got from point A to point B of our culture, like it is making... These all seem to have a resonance that they didn't see when I saw them the first time in the summer. Like, I'm excited to talk about Men in Black, and I was dreading it. I was like, Men in Black, charming movie, vaguely remember it. But in the context of where Men in Black lies in the grand scheme of blockbusters that gets us all the way up to the 23rd Marvel film, it becomes interesting. Like, I think because I am so bored with right now, this minute in summer blockbusters, figuring out what I appreciate about these, about the older ones and where we went awry. Becomes valuable because I want summer blockbusters to be great again.
2: Well, I think we're also talking about directors so far and movies that we want to do as well that are really interesting, big-thinking directors, right? They are revolutionizing a form. They're just not a cookie-cutter director where it was... I think right now you see a lot of indie film directors being plucked into making a big blockbuster, and I think there's always this argument of, well, how much autonomy do they actually have? Are they just being put there because it's another, like, you know, feather in your cap to make it, you know, a little bit more accessible? But I think when you're talking about people like Barry Sonnenfeld and... Steven Spielberg, you're talking about these amazing directors who it's not about being plugged in to make a blockbuster. It's being given a shitload of money to make something that you've always wanted to make and did not have access to do before this. And I think that that's well, right.
1: Well, I, I mean, Spielberg I is I a tough Spielberg. Yes, but I'm excited to talk about the career of my son and with you when we get into this. Okay. I feel like when when I was going back and thinking about it. Barry Sonnenfeld slots into the world of what I thought depressed me about the modern blockbuster as like an indie auteur who then starts making giant films. But that will come later in this episode.
2: Well, I'm excited to hear because I am a fan of Barry Sonnenfeld. I'm a fan of this movie. And just like you, I don't know if I was really looking forward to Men in Black. I was excited to watch it and I really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought.
1: And I will say the whole reason that we're watching Men in Black is because we thought we need a Will Smith film. He was the blockbuster king of the 90s. We put three Will Smith films head to head. We put Independence Day versus Bad Boys versus Men in Black. Men in Black was far and away the winner, which made me say, "Okay, I want to go back and see and hear why this one is the one Will Smith film to rule them all.
2: And I think the listeners were right, Amy. Um, And I love hearing from everybody talking about that at the beginning of the episode. We want to hear your feedback about what films should be featured. And we're doing that right now a lot on our Discord, which is at discord.gg slash Paul It is my Discord, but there is a whole area for Unspooled there where there's voting and conversation and actually an entire amazing community uh, around it. And we want to make sure that people can consistently voice their opinions. And you can do that still on both Amy and my social media page. But as we're talking about this community that has been built by unspooled, just a giant thank you to Kate Littleton, who created the first unspooled podcast group on Facebook. She pulled together so many listeners and created an amazing environment. And she's now taking her leave. She has done her due diligence. She has done her duty and she's done it so incredibly well, creating such a positive, uh, amazing place for all of the people who listen to this show to have conversations about their favorite films and not feel judged if it didn't, you know, fit into what everyone else thought their best film or favorite actor was. She really created a great and open space. So just a huge thank you to Kate for her years of service here, On Unspooled. We will miss you as our moderator on our Unspooled group.
1: Very, 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 very much. Thanks for creating a page for Unspooled listeners that I feel like I was really proud of it, even though we had nothing to do with it. To see a place that had such a wonderful community just be formed with people who the conversations on the Facebook group are so smart. I try not to comment because I don't want to feel like I'm making my opinion known in that group. I like that Facebook group as a community where, like, Maybe you're sick of my voice and my opinions and I can just like lurk and hear everybody else's and see what everybody else is thinking. And I'm just always knocked out by the conversations, the brilliance, the insight, everything over there. So thank you, Kate, for setting a tone. Thank you, everybody, for who hangs out in that community. Thank you for all of the moderators who have helped Kate create such a welcoming, warm place that feels like an oasis inside of the cesspool called the Internet that I try to stay away from.
2: (laughs) And I want that energy to continue. And I think that that's what we're trying to do in our discord space uh, to kind of be able to be involved, but not up in it. Like, cause I also want the listeners of the show to have a space where they can feel like they can disagree with us and not feel like we're like lurking over their shoulders. But at the same time, we want to know what they are thinking, what they want us to see and do. So we, you know, Whatever floats your boat. If Facebook is more your thing, great. If you don't know what Discord is, it's totally free. It takes 30 seconds to sign up for. And it's like an all-night diner of the internet. Very positive conversations. We're doing polls over there. And it's discord.gg slash paulshear. You go to the unspooled area. And I think you will find uh, some great like-minded people. Um, and, of course, we're going to keep the Facebook uh, going. Uh, I'm just... I'm daunted by it because, you know, Kate and her moderators did such an amazing, amazing job with it. Uh, So we will see what we can uh, what we can do in these upcoming weeks.
1: Exactly. And again, best of luck with your move. One of the great coincidences was that when Kate started the group, she didn't even live in America. And then she came to Southern California. And now is when she's leaving Southern California. So I'm glad we had a couple of years where we got to, like, meet people in person when we were doing live shows at the Alamo, which I hope will come back when that theater Comes a little bit more back online.
2: All right. Well, Amy, one thing before we get into the show. Someone's mentioning on the Discord this idea that it's not fair we're just doing American blockbusters because we're leaving out, you know, movies from around the world. But I was thinking about this show and this specific miniseries, and I think we really are talking about the American blockbuster here. Like, And yes, we try to do a lot of shows that take different points of view, but this feels like a very... American thing, the summer blockbuster. Am I right or wrong about that? You're you're smarter than me.
1: I mean, I think the type of film that we are talking about is American. And I think because the American conception of the summer blockbuster has driven a lot of the blockbuster filmmaking across the world, I think it is really worth talking about and looking at in full as a culture. Because what I'm realizing, the more we drill into it, we're really talking about like, 10 guys and their friends. And it's basically all people who knew Spielberg creating a system of filmmaking that we're still living in the shadow of. But I will say to that point about blockbusters from around the world, I want to recommend a podcast people might like. It's the movie podcast that um, has just come out. And what they're doing on this new season of the movie podcast hosted by Rico Galliano is they're looking at the number one box office hit that was like a sensation in only one country at the time. So like the Biggest movie of its era in Amsterdam and the biggest movie of its era in Brazil. And there's an episode that's in India. And they look at why this one film was such a blockbuster there and like all of the social and political reasons that created it. I have learned so much listening to this movie podcast about blockbusters from around the world. So even as we're focusing here on The American, I say, oh, listen to this podcast. You're going to absolutely love it. It is blowing my mind. And you're getting an insight into like Rucker Hauer when he was super young and making like erotic dutch films directed by none other than my captain my captain director of robocop director of starship troopers that i'm still sad we didn't do paul Verhoeven getting his career uh, off the ground in 70s amsterdam anyway movie podcast it's terrific absolutely scratch that itch because these films are worth talking about even if we're not doing it on this series.
2: And Amy, never say never. Just because we're not doing certain movies on this podcast doesn't mean we can't revisit them again. We will always find a way to bring one of these movies back in. We're just picking them for symmetry. We're picking them based on how people want us to talk about them in this miniseries. But we will do those movies. I guarantee you, every movie that comes in close or gets, you know, 47% we are going to do those movies. We want to do those movies. We'll find ways to do it. We're the arbiters of our own destiny here. Um, and with that, maybe we should unspool it.
1: I was so worried you were going to wrap on the world and spool. I was so worried you to uh, make I, your own. I, I
2: could. I Oof. couldn't. I couldn't. The year is 1997. Lion King debuts on Broadway. NASA's Mars Pathfinder Sojourner becomes the first wheeled vehicle to rove on another planet. The first book in the Harry Potter series is published. 1.5 billion people watch the televised funeral for Princess Diana, and the bodies of 39 members of Heaven's Gate cult were discovered after they died by suicide in hopes of hopping on a spaceship following the Hale-Bopp comet. The audiences right now are going to the theater to watch Titanic, which we did on the show, Contact, which we did on the show, the fifth element, which people want us to do on the show. And also on how did this get made? So I'm very curious about that. And today's film men in black, Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Give me the stats.
1: All right, settle in. So men in black, it is based on a three issue comic book written Basically, for the purpose of being optioned as a film or TV property about two special agents, J and K, who are part of a secret government agency tasked to bureaucratize, I would say, alien life on Earth—not to shoot it down, but to tame it and keep things orderly. Um, the comic book was, of course, optioned, and the script was then written by Ed Solomon of the Bill and Ted franchise. If Ed Solomon sounds really familiar to you, it's because the villain in Bogus Journey, Chuck D. Nomolos, is Ed Solomon backwards. It's his own little hat tip to himself.
2: Oh, I love that.
1: Just got to shout that out there. Um, Men in Black is directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who we have crossed paths with before on this show, I would say, subconsciously. Barry was the cinematographer for the Coens for Raising Arizona and also their first film, Blood Simple. They all made a film together, having never made a film before. Uh, then he did Penny Marshall's Big. He was the cinematographer for that. And then he began to make movies himself when all of the big names turned down directing The Addams Family. And producer Scott Rubin turned to Barry and said if he couldn't have anyone famous direct this movie, he at least wanted a weirdo first-timer with a vision. So Barry Sonnenfeld became the guy who directed both *Adams Families. And then he did his passion project, Get Shorty with John Travolta. And then he started the Men in Black trilogy. And he did all three of the very first Men in Black trilogy. Uh, I'm going a bit deep into Barry's biography right now because he wrote his memoirs a couple years ago. Um, They're called Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. And his book is just terrific. Like, I really love this book. And if you were wondering, uh, he does say in his book very clearly that Scott Rudin is a monster way before the producer was brought down last year. Um, He's got some good stories about Scott Rudin and good for you, Barry. But anyway, back to the plot. Agent J is played by Tommy Lee Jones. He's the veteran who's been there in the agency since it was formed in 1961. And Will Smith is Agent J, the hotshot newcomer who has to help his partner return a galaxy before the rightful owners are diplomatically forced to blow up the Earth. Uh, also in the mix, you've got Vincent D'Onofrio as this space roach inhabiting the skin of Vincent D'Onofrio, and Linda Fiorentino as a memorable morgue worker who keeps getting her brains zapped because she keeps learning information she should not know. Take a listen.
3: Just what exactly do you think you're doing here?
1: Uh, taking care of your pest problem.
3: Pest problem? PEST! Yeah, you got a hell of an infestation. You know, I've noticed an infestation here. Everywhere I look in fat, nothing but undeveloped, unevolved, barely conscious pawn skull. Totally convinced of their own superiority as they scurry about their short, pointless lives. Well, yeah. Uh, Don't you want to get rid of him? Oh, the worst way.
1: Men in Black was a huge hit on July 2nd, 1997, which surprised, again, nobody. Because Will Smith had dominated that very same weekend the year before with Independence Day. Uh, Men in Black, of course, is number one, and it stays number one, despite Contact, the movie that we love, opening a week later. Which means also that the hit song on the Billboard charts of week of release is going to sound familiar because we've already listened to it. It was another blockbuster hit that was huge all summer. Puff Daddy singing, I'll be missing to you. And I pulled out this stanza because I think if you squint, it sounds like Puffy is saying that he would maybe be open to being neuralized if it helped him get over the pain of losing his friend.
0: can express what you mean to me. Even though you're gone, we still a your family I'll fulfill your dreams in the future can't wait to see if you open up the gates for me reminisce sometime the night they took my friend try to black it out but it plays again when it's real feelings hard to conceal, can't imagine all the pain I feel Don't give anything to hear half the breath I know you're still living your life after death
1: you know, I'm happy to hear that song as many times as it comes up oh I love, love that song
2: love that song I gotta say Amy loved this movie. I don't think I remembered much about this film, just like Alien and Aliens. This movie is kind of an amalgam of pop culture, memes, you know, moments. It it was surprising to me how solid of a film this is. I mean, from a creative standpoint, it's beautiful. But I also just have to say that The opening sequence, not the the bug flying in the air that looked like maybe a deleted scene from Beetlejuice, which I didn't mind. It just was, it's long. Uh, I think you're also
1: feeling that because of the Danny Elfman score underneath it, which is like so Danny Elfman.
2: It's so, I mean, look, I'm into it. But I will say the opening scene with Tommy Lee Jones, where they stop a truckload of people who are crossing the border, that whole sequence sets up everything. Everything that you need to know in the world in such an active and fun way without giant exposition dumps. And I think, you know, going from Jurassic Park last week, which I think embedded exposition dumps all over the place and did such a great job. This movie just throws you in and you just get it as you're going. And I was like, this is beautifully written. Like it really was. I don't know. I was really impressed with the writing, especially in that opening scene. I was like, I get Everything I need to know about the world, these people, what they do, I'm there.
1: Yeah, and the writing, I should say, at the top is very different from the comic book. The three issues that they had come out first, which were more x filesy I would say. Maybe yeah. like, where they're not just battling, battling. I hate that I keep using the word battled. I feel like this is almost what I want to get into when we talk about blockbusters. Why is everything a fight? Why is everything a battle? But, you know, dealing with aliens on this earth um, in the comic books, they're dealing with just all sorts of things like vampires and ghosts and also aliens. And I think you can get everything you need to know about the tone of the original comic books, just from the cover where there's like a super sexy lady in her underwear and just like a dude with a big white, strong chin, kind of Dick Tracy glowering. Yeah, you know, this is very different. And I think that.
2: It's darker, think... like, like J and Kay in the book, like they kill people. Like yeah. they, they mind a race, but they, they kill people. And it's. They're, they're... more
1: gruff. They're more yes. like the the. They're, I hate. I'm sorry for picking on Dolph Lundgren, but they are more like the Dolph Lundgren type of hero.
2: I was gonna say that it feels more of a commentary on government, like an extension of what we know the the worst part of the CIA is. Like that's what Men in Black feel like in this book. It's like we're moving through, we're creating people in our own image that they didn't seem here. They seem like really elevated TSA agents. Like, they're just keeping the peace. They're, they're, they're peace officers. They are friends to all and just making sure that the world is safe, but more importantly, uh, that they are keeping tabs on anything, any imbalance. Like, they are, nice. they are nice guys, ultimately.
1: Yeah, I mean, the comic book kind of drills into the idea that if you have the power to be the secret agency that deals with all unusual life forms... What you decide to leak and not leak to the public means you can kind of control the direction of culture. And so they become more like shadowy bad guys who hold all this information that they're not leaking out to the public. But this doesn't really deal with it. It's that thought. It's more like you guys couldn't handle it. It's too big. Let us stress about it. We are just government employees. But what really popped at me is that this is a film that right in the beginning likens what it does to... TSA to things like INS, because the first cops that we see in this movie, the first people that we see like pulling over this truckload of people who are trying to immigrate here from south of the border are in the movie's terms kind of played as like idiots. Like these guys are fighting the wrong war is what this movie says Right. right off the bat that you have right here. You have Tommy Lee Jones's agent mocking them to their face for thinking that what they're doing is important and that what they're doing is keeping people safe, that this whole border war which is still like such an occupation of mental space on certain news channels i love having tommy lee jones og texan in his texan draw say that this is stupid right here
4: you can't just- don't sir me young man you have no idea who you're dealing with subense in el camion ahorita por favor we're going to have a little chat with our friend here. You fellas can hit the road. Keep on protecting us from the dangerous aliens.
1: And I love that. Like he, like Tommy Lee Jones, he doesn't even turn over the people back to the government. He like lets the people just trying to immigrate to America to have a better life come in. And that I think that's an interesting moral code to set up right at the beginning of this film.
2: That's exactly what I was thinking about. This opening scene not only sets up our world of the men in black, but it's also making this really interesting, pointed, subtle, social commentary about, like you said, this issue. And I was like, wow, this is so, so well done. It just really, it really got to me in looking at this script and going, wow, this, this is, you know, something that we don't often get, which is a political point of view or a social point of view. I mean, I'm a big Lethal Weapon fan and they definitely... And Lethal Weapon 2 took it upon themselves to make sure that apartheid was a part of the the dialogue of that movie. And it was really cool because as a kid watching that movie, I knew nothing about that. But then I'm like, oh, well, Riggs and Murtaugh don't like apartheid. Like, I got to figure this out. Now, granted, I was very, very young to not understand what apartheid was. So don't think I was like watching this at 18 years old. But it was interesting. Like, you have this cool ability to seed in subtle things that will make you go and research and think and do all that sort of stuff. And I think that that is uh, the mark also of a great filmmaker.
1: No, I agree. I mean, maybe this is why people are like, Hollywood is full of people indoctrinating our kids. Oh, they've got this cabal of left wing views that they're sneaking in. But to me, it just reads like Sonnenfeld and Solomon and people making this film are also just nice guys who are trying not to lionize A type of hero I'm really sick of, which is the guy who runs around with a gun and maybe shoots, like, more people than he has to, but gets applauded at the end of it because he's a hero. Like, the the tough, talking, overacting guy. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones said that he based a lot of his character, interestingly, on Gene Hackman in French Connection. Mm. That he took that character and he was like, what if Gene Hackman from French Connection, who we talked about as, like, a cop that... We were never, it was that movie, you're wrestling with how does this movie feel about this guy? He looks like he's doing shady things. I think the movie is confronting that he's doing shady things. But in the language of the cinema, because it's so thrilling watching him do shitty things, I could never quite tell how I felt in the movie as much as I respected it. It made me feel sick to my stomach. And I like feeling sick to my stomach, but that that movie, it was easy for me to let that go from the original top 100 list. But Tommy Lee Jones is channeling that character here. And yet, even as he's, he's doing it, Immediately after, he, like, dresses down a bunch of guys who are trying to be that person. He turns around to these border cops who are swaggering and yelling and waving waving their guns around and acting like they're the heroes. And as he neuralizes them and explains what a neuralizer is, like, great plot summary, he makes fun of them mercilessly and is like, you guys, basically, you guys ain't shit.
4: This is called a neuralizer. It's a gift from some friends from out of town. This red eye here will isolate the electronic impulses in your brains, and more specifically the ones for memory. Oh, that's good, fellas. Give me a splay burn around the perimeter with holes at 40, 60, and 80 meters from right here. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. What in the hell is going on? Excellent question. And the answer you're looking for lies right here.
3: Who are you? Really?
4: Really? I am just a figment of your imagination. Damn, what a little breed. I'm serious, fellas. You're lucky to be alive after a blast like that.
1: I mean, how refreshing is that in a blockbuster movie?
2: Yeah, no, I, again, this is a blockbuster film that I think also in its... Artistic complexity is a very simple movie, really, because we have this opening scene. It brings us into the world of Men in Black without Will Smith. Then we are introduced to this amazing, insane performance uh, by Vincent D'Onofrio as a man who is uh, attacked, you know, his body taken over literally by an alien. And then you meet Will Smith, who is our outside eyes and ears. And between those first three sections of the film, we get every corner of the world kind of explored. And the movie is pretty much a straight shot right to the end. It's It, it all has been tying to one central plot. Like the, the A to B to C is actually very, very simple in this movie. It's not, um, you know, I think a lot of the times I've seen these blockbusters, they spend a majority of time in the first act getting the world taken care of, and then they launch into, like, the actual story. But the story here is starting right at the very beginning. The aliens are escaping Earth because there's something going on. There's something under attack. How do we get there? How do we how do we stop this thing? And every single person that we meet and introduce to all funnel to answer that question.
1: Yeah, there's something so fast about mm-hmm. how they work through... Even something like Men in Black History. Like, Tommy Lee Jones, when he's walking Will Smith around, basically gets done with it in 30 seconds. He's like, here's the whole setup. This is what it is. Now can we move on?
4: I hey, mean, what the hell is all this? Back in the mid-1950s, the government started a little underfunded agency with the simple and laughable purpose of establishing contact with the race none of this planet. If you
5: look directly at the end of this device, we'll administer the eye test. Everybody
4: thought the agency was a joke, like except the aliens. Lying. who made contact March 2, 1961, outside New York. There were nine of us the first night, seven agents, one astronomer, and one dumb kid who got lost on the wrong back road. Oh, you brought that tall man some flowers. This way. They were a group of intergalactic refugees. Wanted to use the Earth as an apolitical zone for creatures without a planet. Did you ever see the movie Casablanca? The mm-hmm. same thing, except no Nazis. Oh. We agreed, and we concealed all the evidence of their landing.
1: And yet, even as he's working so fast, like... You get this tiny little bit of an idea that he never meant to join Men in Black in the first place, that he's the farm kid that he makes fun of, who is holding a bouquet of flowers, was on his way to go on a date to meet a girl, happened to stumble across this, and then winds up joining the Men in Black. That it's almost not even a career path he chose. It's a career path that was put on him. Like, he, he had his whole life derailed by it, and yet he's embraced it.
2: Well, do you think that there's something about that moment when he gives Will Smith the opportunity to give up his life that he didn't have that, you know, because he he basically says, here's 24 hours, decide if you want to be erased from existence. And how dark is that that Will Smith is like, yeah, I do. Uh, And that's kind of where I think we see the sanding down the edges being kind of like, rub down of a summer blockbuster because that's a dark idea. I don't I, I want to be erased from my own existence um to do this
0: job.
1: Well yeah and let's talk about the mechanics of how they do it. Because he doesn't try to give you an extra squeeze, Sonnenfeld or Ed Solomon. They don't try to give you an extra squeeze by being like, oh he just went on one date with this girl and now he'll never get to talk right. to her again. There's no character like that. There's nothing extraneous. There's no like Going to your parents' graves so we know they died and that's why it's okay. Like, all of that is taken away. But what they make space for is just to watch Will Smith sit on a bench and think about it. As the sun sets, as the day rises again, they give this movie a chance to show a person contemplating in quiet. And I thought that was an interesting montage not, not fake emotional stakes, but just silence.
2: Well, yeah, and they didn't simplify it by saying like, oh, well, his parents, uh, he was adopted and he didn't have a good... Re-. Like, They didn't give him a sob story, right? Like he never expresses yeah. that.
1: He's not um, like, I've always been alone in the world, but now with you, I have a family.
2: Like, well, you know, and I think that this movie was endeavoring to even be to what we're just talking about, this idea of existing in these small moments. Like the end of the film was supposed to be this, like, humorous existential dialogue between J and K and the bug. Like, it was just going to be a conversation that then somehow remedied the situation. You know, it was almost like a hostage negotiator type of uh, a conversation. But then the studio's like, no, 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 you you need to blow shit up. And they're like, okay. And then they have that amazing end where, you know, the alien just explodes all over them. And I was laughing so hard at that ending when the alien does blow up, how long they sit with especially Will Smith with the slime in their mouth. Like Will Smith like goes like, plah, plah, like for a long time. Oh my god, time. I
1: actually pulled that because it's so obscene. Insane how long they're spitting just goo out of their mouth. It's like over thirty seconds. Okay, here is uh, spitting. Uh, uh. 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 There. Call the Tell them we have the galaxy.
5: You got it, friend.
1: Wait, but I love that. You, okay, tell me why you pulled that out. Why you thought that was interesting? Because I thought it was really interesting too. I think that in a movie that is
2: so heightened like this, there are these moments that are grounded in like a reality. And to what you were talking about, like sitting on a bench, like having this moment to think, is something we don't often see in a big summer blockbuster. When you see someone explode, uh, you know, someone get killed, a lot of the times, Eddie Murphy had that joke in in um, Delirious where it's like someone gets shot and it's like, go on without me immediately. Like you just yell it, you know, Where it's like immediately he goes, but if you got shot in real life, you'd be like, oh my God, come back here, fuck, come back here. You know, I think that there is that, that moment here. It's like, they're still humans. Like, they, like it, there was something about that moment that was not only funny, but I feel like exists in that same kind of area, like this idea like, well, they they still are human beings. They're reacting to these things. They're they're having like real emotional moments. And I think this movie is like like throughout the whole film, just like jammed with these like little moments like that. Whether it is Tommy Lee Jones looking at the computer on it or at the girl that he loved, or you know, these these little things I think just connect you to the characters. I mean, what what about it to you stood out?
1: Yeah, I mean exactly that. Because I think When this was the vote and we were like, okay, we're watching Men in Black, I thought in my head we're going to watch what I imagined was a movie that only worked because it was CG characters running around, things running amok. I thought it would just be kind of like a – I remembered it as a brighter, shinier, stupider movie that was all about showing off the special effects. Mm -hmm. And what surprised me was how much this is a movie about – small consequences to things even small consequences to insignificant things that nothing in here happens without kind of looping into how a real person would react the one that really popped out at me is when Vincent D'Onofrio as he's falling apart starts hassling a guy on the street who has like a corner stand where he sells like bug zappers fly swatters and postcards and the guy's patient while Vincent D'Onofrio is like screaming at him about like where to kill bugs and where do you do it and where do you get dead bodies but when Vincent D'Onofrio steals a postcard, he's like, oh, those are three for a dollar. Like, he just right. immediately goes to the, also the practical thing that affects him. Like, you can yell at me. Oh, but you do owe me like 30 cents for that. And that there's an element here of frustration. I mean, like, one of the things that happens to Vincent D'Onofrio is that he just gets his car towed like he gets his car yes. towed and he loses his mind. So it's and he's just angry about it and what's happening and walking in his stiff little body and everything is just a hassle. So it's not like, oh no, we have to get the thingamajob job and the fancy rock rock and the blah 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 and we're running over here. It's like the stakes feel so relatable. Like yeah, who they, wants their car towed? Who wants living- to get robbed even of 33 cents? It's like the principle of the thing
2: men in black live in our world. Like, they are in our world. And there was something about um, the film taking place in New York. I think Barry Sonnenfeld changed the location to be all New York. Originally, it was going to be all over the place. And his thought was, what better place for aliens to fit in than New York? Like, people look aside or they accept weird behavior, and they don't, it's not, it doesn't stick out as much. And I really like that idea throughout the whole movie because really the way that the aliens are personified in this film, it's like body horror-esque in the sense that they are, they're not like, yes, they're CGI, there's some crazy cool effects, but truly like when they're being hidden, they are, are uncomfortable in their costumes, right? They, they, they even if you watch uh, that opening sequence where Will Smith is chasing uh, that criminal up the like as a criminal climbs the entire yeah. Guggenheim. Like the way the body moves is, it it feels human and awkward, or it feels like animal and awkward, there's something about it, like, everything about it, Vincent D'Onofrio's whole body, his whole choice, which I guess was based on Dr. Strangelove, like, everything just feels, like, uncomfortable, but I think that that actually also makes it feel very accessible, because we've seen people like this walking down the street, and we we avoid them, or we don't judge them, or we, we do these things, so it's, it was a lot more, I, I you know, I'm missing the right term, but I'm like, tactile. Like, I feel like it's like, oh, I can can see this. I can feel this. It doesn't feel like the normal CGI-ness of aliens, creatures, you know? Like, they seem dirty. They seem sweaty. They seem gross.
1: Yeah. I mean, half of the aliens that we see aren't really even visibly aliens. It's like, Vincent D'Onofrio or guys who are walking around with a tiny alien on the inside of them or a pug dog. But we're, right. we know that they are aliens from the way that they're talking or reacting, but they're being played by humans who just look a little strange or act a little bit strange. And I was thinking, like, Vincent D'Onofrio's performance makes him a special effect, I think, almost as good as T-Rex, really. Like, he is as good at being an alien as, like the, T-G- as the T-Rex is at being a T-Rex. He transcends CG, but he shows, I think, like the peak of what an actor plus six hours of like molting makeup can do to create a special effect that makes something outstanding. Like, honestly, a lot of the CG in this movie that I remember thinking was kind of cornball is stuff that was ended like right before the movie came out. Because they had Rick Baker, you know, Rick Baker himself being like, One of the kings of the blockbuster movie to the point that he played King Kong himself in like the 1970s King Kong. Like he was the actor playing King Kong in that movie, Rick Baker. And then he goes on to be like the king of doing makeup and special effects, starting with apes, kind of Andy circuses and then like working his way up to doing everything. But um, he was doing mostly puppet work. And when this film was about ready to come out, the studio was like, oh, I thought this was going to be. An okay movie, but this could be a great movie. And they went back to Sonnenfeld and he was like, give me more money. I want to add more CG aliens that we we couldn't afford to do the first time. Like if we couldn't have Rick Baker make them, let me at least CG some aliens to be walking around in the background of the headquarters. And he also had them add like the beginning and ending of the Dragonfly shot and the um, Marvel shot to kind of show the insignificance of the universe. But all of that that was only when they knew that the core was good. I guess this is what I'm getting at. Like the core was good. The practical effects were good. The story was good. And then they added the CG. And I always thought it was a different monster where the CG was what excited them. And then the movie happened to work. Okay.
2: I love that. I love that idea that you reward a movie for being good by giving them more budget to make it better instead of, you know, I think right now, a lot of the of what you see is patchwork like let's put more cgi in so you don't notice that the movie isn't good you know it's a, it's a different way of doing things
3: life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one met crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
5: of a detour
2: I was going to say something about D'Onofrio. When I first saw him, I was like, that is odd. That's an odd choice Like for him to play like this abusive uh, kind of stereotypical like uh, farmer kind of guy. I was like, he just doesn't read that way. Yeah, and he's, he's doing a, jerk, a great right? job. Ju- he's, yeah, he's a jerk. Like, it
1: almost makes it okay that this happens to him because this movie has such a serious moral code that they insert him being an asshole to his wife off screen so that yes. he kind of feel like it's okay.
3: I go out, I work my butt off to make a living. All I want is to come home to a nice clean house with a nice fat steak on the table, but instead I get this. It looks like poison. Don't you take that away. I'm eating that, damn it! It is poison, isn't it? I swear to God, I would not be surprised if it was. The way you skulk around here like a dog been hit too much or ain't been hit enough. I can't make up my mind. You're useless, Beatrice. The only thing that pulls its weight around here is my goddamn truck.
5: You
2: know, and I was thinking about that and I was going, well, you know, it's interesting. Clearly he was cast not because of how he played the farmer, because, you know, his body is, it's such a physical performance. It's its almost a silent film performance in a way. But the way that this movie does so much with ADR, which is like dialogue after the fact. So you're saying they added a lot of creatures after the fact. They also, I bet, added that entire fight scene with his wife after the fact, because this movie was retconning itself in post, like this whole idea, that scene that we see between the two aliens at the diner, they were warring aliens and they had a, uh, a fight at that diner and through reshooting, dubbing, that scene was originally in English. They, re, they you know, they subtitled it, they, they played with all this sort of stuff because they wanted to simplify the film. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, you can deep dive into exactly what the change was, but ultimately what they did was they simplified it one big bad, right? And they didn't make it about these warring factions. They kept it kind of simple. And I think these choices that they made, because why would you shoot an entire, I mean, that's a big scene where he's fighting with his wife that you don't see, right? Clearly they didn't have the footage and they do. Oh, we could just do that. We just keep the lock off shot and we'll be fine. Um, And I think that this movie seems like it just greatly improved based on people's notes and thoughts. I mean, you know, they brought David Coe up in to do a rewrite of the script at the last second. Tommy Lee Jones very much uh, was nervous about doing the movie. Steven Spielberg was like, I'm producing it. Don't worry, I won't let you down. So this movie was one of those rare examples of everyone making sure that whatever was out there was the simplest and best version. And what you kind of get is this, again, just like Jurassic Park, boom, just very clean film that's so much fun to watch. And the characters, at the end of the day, the characters are, I want to watch these characters go on more adventures. Like, I don't, I can't tell you the entire plot. It's like, it's inconsequential, but it's like, all right, alien was going to attack. They had to stop the alien. They got it. End the story. But I feel like the characters are working more than the concept. And here, I'm not sure of how that would be now. I mean, did you see Men in Black International?
1: I did. I didn't hate it. Okay. I didn't, I didn't see it. it, so I have nothing to fine. say about it. Okay, It was fine. Um,
2: But was it more aliens or was it more relationships? It was
1: more, more. You know, it was okay. more travel, more things, more stuff. But it wasn't more, I felt like, more heart. Mm-hmm. Heart's a cheesy word because I don't think I'd say that Men in Black has heart, but I would say it has, oh, am I saying the word truth? I guess I am. It has the that groundedness truth that, if, that you're describing that makes it feel really real. Whereas my memory of Men in Black International is, I don't know, running around, people are like operating inside people's heads. You get a little lost of what's happening. It's just more story, more this, more that, more whatever. And it doesn't what? add up to more.
2: You know, I think Barry Sonnenfeld has a good relationship with crazy and, uh, like, big ideas and actually small characters. You know, uh, you know for better or for worse. Now, I don't know if that plays out exactly the same way in Men in Black 2 because sequels are such an interesting thing. You know, but if you look at, like, Get Shorty or Adam's Family, uh, obviously Wild West is an outlier there. He's a guy who worked with the Coen brothers. You know, he, he gets... This idea of really interesting characters in a in a subversion of genre, in a way, I guess maybe I'm maybe I'm no. overstating it. I don't no, know. No, I
1: think you're exactly right. And in fact, one of the things I think might be true that I'm that I'm only really now wrapping my head around because I just read uh, Barry's memoir is it's not even so much that he like studied under the Cohens and learned from them this style of humor and comedy because having just done raising Arizona, like what six months ago. I feel Raising Arizona in this film, don't you? Yeah, In the camera absolutely. angles and the way that people lean into into stuff, the way that everybody's a little bit cracked and everybody's memorable and fun. There is this When you were saying, like, yes, we do take our directors now, our young talents, and, like, shove them into genre movies and it gets lame. I was like, you know, Barry Sunfield kind of did it right. There are the best parts of the Cohen style of black comedy in this movie. And he put it in. But also... It's not even so much that he like leached from the Coens, it's that he created it with them because he was the guy with them from the very beginning. Like he met them at a party before they made a movie, before he made a movie, and they decided to all work together. And I think his sense of humor is that sense of humor as well. And so it is it is a great meshing. I think I want to make sure I'm giving him credit for, I think, adding to and creating the Cohen sensibility and not just like sitting at their knee and learning from them, because I think right. he was a lot more dynamic in that. His story, by the way, is so interesting. I I kind of don't want to bum you out with this story. No, I want to hear it. But maybe I will. Ah, uh, so like, um, really, the only feature films he'd made before he did Blood Simple was he got this job when he was starving, um, to shoot nine porn films in nine days, like to make oh, nine wow. porno features. He literally in the Boogie Nights era, like end of the seventies, they're like make nine films in nine days. He said it was such an awful experience that he couldn't. Uh, get aroused for six months after that. Like everything just Oof. turned him off because of the experience of that. There's a horrible day on the set on like maybe the seventh or eighth day where, where something goes awry with somebody's bodily fluids from the back and he gets covered in Santorum. Oh. We have a word for that. As he's the cameraman for the, for this movie. Wow. Um, And he... Runs out on the street and vomits because he's a nervous vomiter. That's one thing that's like a recurring thing. Like he threw up every day on the set to Blood Simple because he would get so nervous. He runs out and vomits. They go in. They finish the scene. Some more awful stuff goes wrong before midnight. And then at midnight, one of the women in the movie goes and gets him a cake. And she's like, happy birthday, because now it's his birthday. And so he eats this cake covered in all the body fluids. And then he goes outside to try to catch a bus home now that it is dawn. And two men come up to him and mug him and they take his wallet and they take his watch and then they look at them and they're like, these are awful and they give them back.
0: Wow. Anyway, this
1: is a tease to read his memoir. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And then the next year he meets the Coens at a party and they slowly make like the teaser trailer for Blood Simple, make the money to raise the film. And then 10 years later, he's getting hen to do uh, The Adams Family. Wow. Oh,
2: God, your face. I'm so sorry. No, I mean, no, I'm like, no, it, like, I am not grossed out by it. I'm just sort of like, I love the, you know, I think that we, it's so hard to see where you are in your career and what's next, you know, and, um, and I think that, you know, these are the moments that you bring into whatever you do. And it, it, especially you're working with the Coen brothers at that point, you know, or you're working, you're working in all these weird zones, like we've all taking money to do things that we're like, oh, I hope that no one, we don't lead with that. But, uh, you know, when I was back in New York, I met so many editors who, who, whose side job was editing porn on the weekends just because it's like, I just paid, it just paid money.
1: Yeah. Actually, fun fact for Friends of Men in Black too, uh, you know how the kind of worm guys, the guys here who like to drink Vietnamese coffee in the break mm-hmm. room, oh, yeah, they I come back because... in the second one and they have that shagadelic apartment with the uh, conversation pit. Barry Sonnenfeld based that Apartment on the set of where these porn films were shot.
2: Oh, I love it. So So good. He was
1: purging his demons on that. But yeah, I bring that all up to say, I, I think that is part of why when I watch this film, I don't feel as much gigantic intellectual IP overlordship just because Barry Sonnenfeld, I think, is at the helm and making kind of quirky, interesting choices where I feel like I see the sensibility of an actual filmmaker inside of this movie. Do you know what I mean?
2: Absolutely. And this is the argument that we have all the time about Marvel films, too. I think that there's a certain type of Marvel director who you see as someone who did the job. And then there's another type of Marvel director who you see is using the venue of Marvel to show off what they can do, right? And I think there's a fine line with that. Like, this idea that, you know, how can you, like, I always think about Peter Jackson. Like, you know, Peter Jackson made that movie Meet the Feebles, which is Mm -hmm. kind of like an adult Muppet movie. It's crazy, you know, and Peter Jackson's such a genius, but if you watch that movie, I don't think you would think, oh, this is the guy who's gonna make Lord of the Rings, you know? When you pick people like this that maybe exist off to the side a little bit, make weird things, uh, you... You, I think the first instinct is, oh, they can never make a a four quadrant anything because they're too weird and they're too bizarre. But time and time again, we're seeing that they can. I think sometimes the the like James Gunn's a perfect example of that. Like he made some very cool, weird things, uh, and then was able to really bring that into Guardians of the Galaxy, which is such a fun big movie. I just think that there's this sometime it's a good idea to bring in the weird people, bring in more weird people, because I think you're going to find that the weird people can make things uh, more interesting, more engaging, make you lean in more. They're not just going to make weird shit. Yes, they want to make weird shit. But look, for every Guillermo del Toro and, you know, James Gunn or Peter Jackson, you're seeing like all these people know how to also make something mainstream. I don't know. It's a I just think it's you should always be embracing the weirder voices because I think it's much easier to get weird to be in line than in line to be weird, if that makes sense.
1: No, I agree with you. I mean, Scott Rudin is a monster and I would be absolutely thrilled if he never produces a thing again. But I would like it if we carried forth this fraction of his idea that if you can't get the the name which is a blessing, I think in this case, get somebody interesting, like throw money at somebody interesting and see what they do with it. Like, I appreciate that he took that risk. And I appreciate that even though he gave Barry Sonnenfeld that risk, like that Barry Sonnenfeld talks in his books about how Scott would throw things and scream and blah, blah, blah. And that his only way of dealing with it when he was stuck in an office and Scott Rudin was screaming at him is to out immature him. So if Scott was screaming, he would take all the cushions off the couch and build a little fort and he would climb inside the fort and say, I'm sorry, Scott, I can't hear you screaming when I'm in the fort. You're going to have to scream louder. And that Scott would scream so loud that he would finally be unable to scream. And then he would ask Barry to come out and Barry would say, only if you're done screaming.
2: I love this.
1: (laughs) But that said... One thing that I think, though, is interesting is as much as we're talking about Men in Black as an auteur project, thanks to the fact that it came out in 1997, one of the early days of the internet, you can still find articles written at the time about the marketing of Men in Black that really break down how it works when a studio greenlights a gigantic production that they hope will sell a lot of stuff. And I wanted to go through it because we're getting a really good insight through Men in Black Of how studios produce a blockbuster, like how they lay the whole thing out. So do you want to hear like the story of the merchandising behind Men in Black? Yes. Okay, here we go. This all starts 18 months before the movie comes out in January 1996. And that is when uh, Sony and Amblin discuss their marketing strategy two months before they even announce any stars in this film. And they figure out how they want to market the film. And then by April, right after they've announced the stars, they create this sales kit that they start to send out to everybody, trying to get any kind of sponsorship deal they can. Like, well, who's the fast food person? Who are the toys? Who's going to make the toys? What promotional partners can we get on? Before Rick Baker's even making the movie, he's meeting with promotional partners to talk about what the toys will look like for this film before anything comes out. They zero in then, in April 96, that this is going to be a film that they think will be for boys 8 to 12. And try to gear it in that narrow demographic already because they're thinking that that's who they're going to sell to. Um, They do another second sales kit in August. The movie is now sort of being shot. Uh, They get their lunchbox deals. They get trading cards, costumes. Um, They cannot get a fast food deal because um, this is a summer where Spielberg's Lost World is coming out. And most of the oh, fast, wow. field, fast food people have already made a deal with him or with Batman and Robin. So they're a little bit bummed going into the release of this because they didn't have a burger. Then, even still before the movie comes out, at the end of 1996, around Christmas, they already start making plans to do a cartoon. They're just like banking on the wow. fact that this will do well. Uh, they greenlight the cartoon in February 1997. We're still like five months before the movie comes out. Um, That's when they get the watch company to sign on. Then they get Ray-Bans to finally sign on. And then meanwhile, they're slowly starting to cut a treasure. But they've been doing so much behind the work marketing of selling this long before. It was the cartoon that really struck my idea, that it wasn't just like, the movie is great. Let's rush a cartoon into business. It was, we are creating a franchise right here because we realize how lucrative this could potentially be. But even so, it wasn't until a couple months before the movie came out that the marketers were like, actually, this is going to go beyond boys from 8 to 12. You know, I think it kind of, it depressed me to like really see written down that they were like making movies for 8 to 12 year olds because I yeah. don't love that. And I hate seeing all of the financial mechanics underneath the surface that are gearing towards it. Making Rick Baker talk to them about what the toys will look like, figuring out how to make this capitalize completely on that segment. But it's interesting to watch how it played out. And then they were surprised to realize that actually... It, it played equally well with men and women. It played equally well with kids and adults. They realized that it played really well, like pretty much in every demographic. And then they knew they had a mega big hit, even if they didn't have a burger. But,
2: I mean, so basically what we're yeah. saying is, look, I think the issue that everyone just experienced or lived through was we love the Mandalorian and there's no fucking baby Yodas. Because Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni were very protective of that secret getting out. They did not want that secret to get out. I know it's not Baby Yoda, by the way. Uh, but uh, But this idea that everybody wanted to jump on this and they held it back, which meant that there was about a six to eight month delay between, you know, wanting a baby yoda and being able to get a baby yoda doll or mug or whatever it was and that's just not done anymore and it was kind of cool that they did do that and they kept that secret so hard because you know i think you're you know when you're spending 140 million dollars like they did on men in black you want to figure out how you can get back i mean one of the big things about space jam uh this past week you know regardless of what you think about space jam uh is that they have one of the big sale, selling points is that they have 612 advertising tie ins, like the <sighs> most ever of any film. So it's like, you know, because they're hitting NBA, they're hitting kids, they're hitting nostalgia, they're hitting like, it's some, it, like, I saw a, a, a Bark Box. A space jam bark box, you know, uh NBA 2K. You're buying like characters in their outfits. You can buy a Toon Squad thing in NBA 2K. I have kids' bed sheets. I have toys. I have mac and cheese. Literally, there's a mac and cheese with LeBron in my house right now. There's uh, you know, there's so Are you much eat it? St- well, it's just craft macaroni and cheese. My kids like an Annies. Um, they don't touch that. So, so they're not mac and eat cheese. It. I mean, I wouldn't eat it either way, but the kids like Aunt Annie's, they're willing to try the Space Jam one because they feel like it's going to be sp- special. But once they realize it's just craft mm, mac and cheese, it's not going to be too But This is
1: that. how they learn about marketing. That's right I know, That's
2: it. But, but this idea that like. Wait, did you even you, see the movie yet? Yeah, of course. Sorry, three times. Whoa. Yeah. So you, you like it? Uh, I have two kids who have watched it three times. I uh, No, you know what? I actually will say, I know that this is a whole different conversation. Um, By the way, when we were recording this, this is just the Monday after Space Jam came out on Friday. Um, I've seen it three times. Um, What do I think about it? I have one question about it. Mm -hmm. I only have one question. Everything makes sense to me except for one thing. What is the Warner Brothers 3,000?
1: Oh, you mean, what are they doing with the giant server? Like, what is
2: it? Yeah, like, why? What is it? Is it a streaming network? Because, like, the idea Uh. is that they want to get, like, like, Al G. Rhythm wants to have LeBron be the face of, of the Warner Brothers 3000, but it seems to be the only thing that it does is put LeBron in my favorite movies. Now, is the idea that... This sort of device we'd all scan ourselves in and be in it.
1: Well, I was thinking about it. I just immediately kind of pretended it was the same plot of that movie I was telling you about, the Congress. That's about Robin Wright getting scanned and her likeness put into franchises against her will. I thought it yeah. was like that, where you could make any movie and have it star LeBron. But maybe right. I'm wrong. Well,
2: that's that's what I thought it was too. But I was like, well, where's the like? Look, I all I love LeBron. It's an odd choice. It would be an odd choice to be like, "Hey, we have this machine that can put you in any movie at all. Let's put a non actor in every <laughs> movie ever made." Uh, like, so I didn't understand that. I didn't understand the reason for the like. I didn't understand the MacGuffin, and I, and I do, and I and and I, I do want to get to the bottom of what the MacGuffin is because, yes, the rest I'm okay with. I get it all. I just don't get what the original plan was. What was the original? Is it just to scan everyone or they wanted LeBron to be the entry point? Is it like the way that Biden brought in Olivia Rodrigo to tell people to get vaccinated? Like, is is he the entry point? Like, hey, everybody, you can now put yourself in the movie. But I felt like they needed to... I, you know what? I guess what I'm saying is it was a busted presentation, in my okay. opinion.
1: Well, yes. And LeBron said as much, so you agree with him. But if the well, entry LeBron point is, can a LeBron movie be the entry point for getting kids interested in corners of the Warner brothers franchise. Then that is a thing that they almost seem to prove by the end of it, by being like, here's LeBron and some droogs.
2: Yeah. Yeah, But Amy, I I will say that with that, it really like they used IP, but they did not use it in an interesting way. In my opinion,
1: I think they used it interesting at the, in that montage. I liked it at the montage. Like, yes, they don't have Betty Davis uh, as baby Jane say anything, but I mean, I've been wrestling with this movie since I wrote a positive review about it, which I stand by. But I've been trying to figure out, like, what is broken in me that I gave that a positive review and continue to stand by it. And I realize that it once again just boils down to how I review a movie, which is I review a movie against the scale of its own ambition. Mm-hmm. And I feel like against the scale of its own ambition, if a Space Jam 2 movie had to exist, I could imagine it being much worse than this one, but it's hard to imagine it being much better. And so on that scale, I am forced to realize that I will support and defend this Space Jam 2.
2: I, I'm not against Space Jam 2. I I understand why it's hilarious, and I understand everyone's issues with it. And I like the idea of like ingraining it into the universe of warner brothers like it's very much a warner brothers like a warner brothers movie but like space jam the original space jam it's not like there was a great plot there it's like okay looney tunes are real they broadcast from the center of the earth there's a guy on the moon who runs an amusement park who wants to capitalize on the success of looney tunes the cartoon by using them to be i was like well they actually won because in six flags just Warner Brothers cartoons as like mascots for Six Flags, and that's like a weird thing. So isn't that what that's but it makes no sense. Like yeah, the I mean, Warner Brothers are, like, exist in the world in like in the earth like in the earth.
1: Yeah, there are these yeah. commentaries within the film about the absolute tyranny of intellectual property and becoming intellectual property. Yeah. And In a way, they feel like an extension of this whole summer blockbuster series that we're doing, like testing the limits of intellectual property and why I don't want intellectual property to be considered a bad name necessarily, but I hate that phrase. I hate the whole concept behind it. It's interesting for me to at least see that they're pulling out like the crazy nun from the devils as part of their intellectual property and letting her stand shoulder to shoulder with like the droogs. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I guess. And, and even yeah. though they're not doing, you're, you're right, enough with it. But like, to kind of bring it back around, the last time I felt this weirdly scrambled about a movie that I liked, even though I knew that I shouldn't like it or that I was, that I was fine with it, its existence, was actually a Barry Sonnenfeld movie called Nine Lives. It's the one where.
2: Oh my god, the Kevin Spacey cat movie.
1: Yes, where Kevin Spacey is a cat. Like honestly. If you're going to make a movie where Kevin Spacey is a talking cat, once again, you made about the best version that you can. And I feel like as a critic, I am under obligation to at least buy into the basic premise of what the movie is trying to present. We intended to make a talking cat movie with Kevin Spacey. And if I buy into it at all, which I feel like is only fair if you're going to review it, to say I accept you for what you are trying to be and I do not defy your reason for existing. I will see what you did with your premise. That's fine. It's absolutely fine.
2: I want to add one point to Space Jam. I've watched it a bunch. I don't mind Space Jam at all. I actually enjoyed it. I think that there's some good performances in it. I think there's some fun stuff. I think that there's a lot of stuff left on the table, right? Uh, And to that end, you know, like you walk in or out of that movie at any given point, there's some insane lines. And I think most of the human... Actors in that film basically go like, What's going on? Like about a million times. And uh, there's a great moment. I, I was my kids had like a movie night with some of their friends and I was making the popcorn and I walked into the room and all I heard was uh, bugs go like, eh, what's up, Doc? And then the bond's like, All I know is that my kid has been captured by a computer program and I have to play basketball to get him to be free. And he goes, eh, that's interesting. What's his name? Al G. Rhythm. Oh, I was like, I was like, wow, okay, and I went in there like with that idea. I was like, all right, but you know, my kids loved it. I just guess, and by the way, we love a lot of movies, and I watch it with them, and one and a half times, maybe three times. I mean, I, I've seen pieces of it in three times, but I guess what I'm missing is like play with the. Like, it felt like. You're driving by the Warner Brothers lot. You're seeing, like, a moment of Casablanca. You're seeing a moment that's, like, exist in these worlds a little bit. Like, let's make it, like, Walter Mitty or something. like. But I guess that's the issue with like, well, we put a basketball star in it, so the centerpiece has to be a basketball game to save his kid, not, like, use these characters in any way, because he doesn't use the characters. Like, like he, he has access. Like, they literally, the premise of the movie is you have access to everyone in the, in the Warner Brothers world, and then Bugs Bunny's like, "Ah, eh, actually, you don't. Why? And Bugs Bunny's like, actually, I'm going to pull all my care, my guys from the original Space Jam. Why? Because you miss your friends, and why did your friends leave? And what are they doing on these other planets? They seem like they're living happy lives, and you're the one who can't move on. You're on the Warner Brothers. You're in like, the- like I don't understand it. But I enjoyed it. And sometimes I'm in that zone where I'm like, if I ask a question, it will all fall apart. And I think I look at these movies like Jurassic Park, like Men in Black, like a lot of the films we're talking about, and I go, I get it. It's not overcomplicated. I feel like this overcomplication has become part of this thing is like we got to make everyone like it we have to have 612 brands enjoy it we have to get the lunch boxes and the, the cartoon shows and the action figures we
1: can't figures. have cinema sins make a mean video about us
2: yeah and what you do is you get lost in you get lost in the sauce it's like and um you know and, and i and i, I mean, guess I, yeah i yes. do think
1: lost in the sauce is a thing I, I agree with you i like i'm a wholeheartedly agree in agreement with you and now you've got me really thinking about this world where Bugs Bunny is like the jigsaw from Saw assembling his friends and being like, do you want to play a game? But the game results in them actually getting squished and physically harmed, which is true.
2: I mean, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know, but Bugs Bunny dies. Like that's like the like <laughs> someone had to be like someone had to be like, oh, I don't yeah, know we should you can kill. say that <laughs> we can say it now. Uh, i because like it's like what a crazy fucking thing to do and it's like but i feel like that thing is is uh is like that's how we'll subvert it it's like really okay uh you know i I mean you know whatever yeah whatever
1: (laughs) but i'm glad we're talking about calculation i mean i think you can't Talk about the summer blockbuster without talking about the calculation behind it and the reasons why things were greenlit and how they were put together. And so, I mean, I think actually to have this movie star Will Smith is really interesting because even just talking about Will Smith, in talking about Will Smith, you do talk about like the mechanics and machinations behind the creation of what people want to be a summer blockbuster. Like I have a lot of Admiration for how Will Smith put together his career. You know, maybe we should just like a quick Will Smith recap because I think it's important to like bring him up to the moment of Men in Black and cover a little bit of Independence Day since we're since we didn't. I think that that movie does have a place to play here. So here's the thing with Will Smith you know, he starts to do The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, it's instantly a giant hit. People are like surprised that he's so charismatic, but it proves that he is. A mega talented person in front of a camera and the audiences just want to watch him. That he has whatever it is. Will Smith clearly has it. And so he's figuring out what his next thing is going to be. Like, how is he going to break out of TV? And he winds up doing, um, you know, Six Degrees of Separation, that movie where he plays like a hustler. Mm -hmm. That's not a comedy. It's not a giant movie. It's like a movie that's more of a serious thing where he says to the world, like, please do take me seriously as an actor. I'm going to try my best. And he does mostly. Like, the one thing about that movie is he's supposed to have like an on screen kiss with a man, and he last minute decides he can't do it because he is really worried about his career at that moment. And it is the early 90s when maybe that would have hurt him. It's hard to say. It's it hard to say. Such a weird, awful, different time. He says that if he could do that movie again now, he would do it. But it at least convinces people that he can act. And then he goes back to the set of Fresh Prince and he says, I want the show to get a little bit more serious. Like, yes, we're funny, but I think we need to be tackling more serious things in the writing room. I want this to be a better, a better show, a stronger show. So then he gets offered Bad Boys and takes it. And Bad Boys, by the way, was supposed to star, uh, like of all people, John Lovitz and David Spade, I think. No, John Lovitz oh, and Dana Carvey.
2: Dana Carvey, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then when they can't get the contract to work out, um, basically Michael Bay is like, all right, I don't know. Well, this guy and I think Martin Lawrence is funny. And so that's how he...
2: Well, but it was, wasn't it um, Martin first and then they brought in Will?
1: I'm not sure. Is that the story?
2: I, I I believe the story was, all right, now Martin will be the lead. And then Martin was the one who vouched for Will. And then sort of as this come back around, Will is now the one who kind of brought back... Like, I feel like it was, it's was it been like a very interesting relationship, but I believe that was the idea. it was like... Like, who could we pair with? And the idea being that, like, Martin Lawrence was chill enough to be like, I'm okay to go toe to toe with this guy because Martin Lawrence is the comedy part. Like, Martin Lawrence has the jokes. Will Smith has the cool.
1: Will Smith has so much cool. It's a it's a crazy amount of cool inside of one human body. It's bizarre. But then he does this really calculated thing as he's figuring out how to blow up his career even bigger, which is he looks at the top 10 movies of all time. Just like, what are they and what kind of movie do I have to make if I want to be the biggest action star? And he realizes that seven of them have creatures in them. You know, like well, Jurassic Park was on that uh, list, Close Encounters, Jaws. I,
2: I want to I say one thing about this. I heard this story from the guy who watched these movies with him. What? When I first came out to Hollywood, he was. We were, I had a meeting at Overbrook. And that's Will Smith's production company. Or at least it was. I think it still is. And he goes, you know, we sat down. Will and I and we went into this thing where we watched every every giant summer blockbuster and we wrote down a list of what they all had in common and then we started to make this our checklist for movies that we would do or not do based on this list and that's why I think you can get a misstep like Wild Wild West but I also think for the most part he's you know just hit 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 and you know, there's there's conversation around the point when that gentleman left. Uh, that producer, his co-producer, Will starts taking weirder movies, uh, and I always think he's great in them. But that idea of like that hit ratio kind of goes a little bit downhill when that person leaves.
1: No, I believe that, and I mean one of the things that those movies also have in common is that they're all Spielberg-affiliated, mm. and so the idea that Spielberg calls him and says you have to do Men in Black. Makes sense. Which he didn't want to do. He didn't want
2: to do because he just did ID4. And, uh, you know, and I think it's Jada at that point is like, you do it, do it. You know, she like, I think she gets it.
1: Yeah, exactly. But yet it is in studying Will Smith that I find whatever is happening right now with the modern blockbuster to be so telling, because I think he did it right. Like, I respect a lot of the films that Will Smith made. I think he made good versions of these movies, even if he came at it from like a money ball perspective. And the fact that Will Smith is struggling right now to have a hit, I think says something about how whatever the model is that worked in the 90s and worked in the 2000s, it's like completely broken and we haven't figured our way out of it yet. Because he keeps trying to make this formula work with like these giant blockbuster movies. A lot of them are on Netflix and none of them are very good. And I feel like if Will Smith can't make a giant blockbuster hit, somebody has to figure out what the new model is because it it isn't working. And I'm glad it isn't working. I'm like burn it all down, destroy it, and rebuild something stronger. But I think him and Tom Cruise, their inability to create something new, shows. I mean, that this is gonna go.
2: This is gonna go up to my theory right now, which is like, there's no more stars. It's just concepts, right? Yeah. And it's like, and I think that Will Smith has tried to avoid that and not like jumped in. So it's like, I'm not gonna jump into the MCU. I'm gonna jump into the DC. I'm gonna launch the DCU. I'm gonna make Suicide Squad. I was like, no, you're not. You know, it just goes down. You know, it's like there's uh, there, You know, look, and I and I respect. You know, th- let's not take let's take the dramas out of the the equation. You know, but it's sort of like, I th- I feel like he's taken some things. like you can say like, oh, M Night, M Night had a whole idea, like the, that whole movie After Earth or whatever that was uh, with him and Jaden was gonna be like an online portal, a book, a thing, a that. It's the way I feel about apps. Like we all like an app. And then someone comes and goes, I'm going to give you the app that you like, but it's a little bit better. But they forget the fact that like, well, but I'm using this app and I'm comfortable here. So the little bit better that you're going to give me doesn't take away from the time and energy and effort that I've put into liking and using this thing. It's like, what are you giving me that's a completely different experience? Like people, I think often try to like, just like, oh, oh, everyone's doing uh short form video like TikTok let's make a bunch of TikTok clones. It's like no no no, TikTok is what it is. It's Snapchat, thank you and and IG, thank you too. Like they're great. Reels are great and but it's not TikTok. TikTok's only going to be TikTok and I feel like uh I don't know, I just feel like it's like you're trying to do you're trying to do something That's like in the vein of what you think people like, but what people really like are Marvel movies or something bigger. Like he's doing things that are parallel to things that we want to see, but not like they check all the boxes, but they're just not. They feel like pale representations of what we actually want to see.
1: But I honestly think that also what it means is what's working right now at the box office. It almost feels like obligation blockbusters. It's not like I'm so excited to see this new thing I've never seen. It's like, well, I've seen seven of of the last like eight. Fast and Furious, I may as well see the new one. Isn't everybody else seeing it? I think like we're looking for some sort of way of connecting with people and having a shared cultural experience. And because there's nothing else really... Getting greenlit to that extent besides familiar properties, it's like you feel like you just, you're just you obligated to catch up with whatever the Marvel was because you know people will be talking about it. I don't right. sense the kind of freshness in there. And I don't even sense anticipation, I think, around our blockbusters. I think I sense inevitability, which feels different.
5: Yeah, I'm, no, I'm going yes to try my no. best
1: not to put like a childhood spin on this. But I was a kid when Men in Black came out. And I remember being really curious about it. Like curious. Like I'm curious to see what this is. And not, like, I feel as though I need to also know what this is because I am so invested in this Marvel story.
2: But that's but that's also, I think, the way that—I'm uh, not going to reference a movie that you say I reference too much, but I'll talk about The Quiet Place, right? People leaned in, like, ooh, what is The Quiet Place? Like, they're— is room for this somebody made a point on the discord about you know m night is also responsible for that like oh, what is this sixth sense what is old what is and i think that the only problem with m night is like sometimes it hits and sometimes it misses but that like this idea of what am i curious like what are these movies that like i think judd apatow uh kind of led with that And i think seth rogan and and that production company like continued it It was like, who are these people? What's in this comedy? What's in what is the hangover? What you know, there are these movies. Yes, they're few and far between. But when they work, they really, really work. I mean, it's like
1: we'd get more of them if we took the giants out of the marketplace, which is what I'm hoping for. Well,
2: yeah, because I think at the end of the day, a studio is probably less inclined to spend one hundred and forty million dollars on a new Men in Black. Like, say if this is like 1997 and we don't know what it is. We don't know who's in it versus a, you know, bad boys four.
1: I mean, this is actually why I want to spend some time talking about Wild Wild West, a movie that I have not seen. Have you seen oh, Wild Wild West? I have
2: seen it. It was We covered it on How Did This Get Made. Right. Yeah. You've
1: already made some couple grumbles. I assume that Wild Wild West is a bad movie, but I think there's something in the way that it fails that is worth discussing. Because Wild
2: Wild West, to me, can I just say, just off the bat, based on amazing IP, right? A great television show that is so cool, so fun. It's just like... Old West meets like sci-fi. It's great. I love that TV show. The movie was set up very similar, though. It's like it's it is like a Men in Black clone. You know, it's like here's Kevin Klein, the older statesman who is a very persnickety inventor who has all this kind of cool shit, and Will Smith is like I believe like a, a local sheriff who then it gets sucked into this crazy world, and then they're fighting a giant spider at the end, which is only because the head of the studio had a thing about spiders. But uh, but it's a crazy, yeah. But go ahead, continue, sorry.
1: Well, okay. So you're right. These two things are really similar. They're both based on kind of graphic novel properties. It's the same people reteaming, you know, Will Smith and Barry Sonnenfeld again. And I think this is Barry and Will and the studio testing, can the magic of Men in Black be expanded to do things that aren't necessarily sequels, right? Like, can mm-hmm. we take whatever alchemy we figured out and use it to add more creativity to the blockbuster universe than going immediately right back to the well, which is the sort of thing that makes me want to root for a movie like Wild Wild West in retrospect, because what if it had worked, right? Like what if Wild Wild West had worked, would we then have had these two guys making tons of different stories and not doing three men in black films in a row? Like, I'm curious about that. One of the stories I heard, because Barry Sonnenfeld, Like, is not, I think, super in love with Wild Wild West himself. But he told this story about how he thinks part of how it got that stink on it, right? Because it is a movie that came to the theaters with a stink even before people saw it. People expected it to be really bad. Um, And a lot of that came out of this one test screening that they did for Wild Wild West, where apparently people booed right when the title credit of Wild Wild West came up. And that's because they had been told that they were sitting down to go see the matrix like so some guy mm. i think who was like passing out the cards being like you want to go see a free movie tonight it's a test screening blah 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 blah, blah told all these people that they were going to go see the matrix instead and when they sat down and the card popped up for wild wild west they all got mad and then they booed and then they tanked the um the rating of it And then the studio got really freaked out and then everybody heard this movie was maybe a bomb and it contributed to this energy that the film was a bomb even before people came out and saw it for themselves. And so I think it's interesting that some guy who was making minimum wage maybe single-handedly destroyed this lane of an interesting blockbuster. Like I feel like that guy, I want to find him and I feel like he should be forced to wear a shirt that says like, I lied and told people they were seeing The Matrix instead of Wild Wild West and therefore derailed blockbuster filmmaking forever and all I got was a t-shirt. I don't know. I feel like there should be some sort of recognition of this person who made this happen. You know what?
2: I, 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 don't, I don't agree with this. <laughs> I don't agree with this idea because it's like a movie does not get defined by a test screening. Like you can't, like if it, if it was that, the if that was the case, it would be like Live, Die, Repeat, which was like, oh my gosh, we'd have a renaissance for Wild Wild West. It's a mess. It's a mess because I think what they tried to do is the Preston Sturges model, right? Which is like, I have this stable of characters. I'm going to make another movie. Can we, we don't have to make a sequel. We could just make another movie with the people that you love. We can switch it up. We can go do this thing. And what they did was they made, if Die Hard is Die Hard, they made Under Siege. Now, Under Siege did technically work, but I'd use it for this analogy to say, like, I don't want to see Die Hard do Under Siege. I don't want to see McTiernan go over and go, now you're on a boat. Um, and and I feel like that's what they did. They were like, all right, we got the old guy, we got the young guy, we got the thing, we got the that da, da 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 and we'll go over here. Um it was too similar in my opinion. like take that crew and go, I mean, look, I know it's a bad example, but it's like, do what do Maverick the way that R- Richard Donner took Mel Gibson and put Danny Glover in a small part, but uh, you know, like let's take that team like you like you like the way that they've produced something well, now they're over here now. I'm not gonna talk about Mel Gibson in the social sense. I'm just talking about him as an actor in that moment. you can go you have to do something different though. it's not like Maverick is not Lethal Weapon. Like if if he, if like if they just went and remade like Lethal Weapon, like they go, all right, well we're not gonna do a Lethal Weapon sequel, but we're gonna take Danny Glover and Mel Gibson and we're gonna make them uh, private investigators who stumble on a large. It's like oh, it's the same fucking thing, same fucking thing. So it's like you're I mean, ang-
1: I'm angry at it because it's not the thing I want
2: because it's too similar I, okay. to the thing I like.
1: I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think all things can be true. I think Wild Wild West can be a bad movie. However, I think if those test screening readings had been better maybe they would have done what they did for Men in Black, given it some more money, fixed a little bit of things, given the money to do what they need to do. I mean, if Men in Black got, like, retconned last minute and changed around and, like, was re-edited two weeks, I think, before the movie came out, if there had been more hope for Wild Wild West, maybe it could have gotten better. But related to that, not even just that the movie was bad, but that the movie was considered a bomb even before it came out and talked about like a bomb. And destroyed by the Razzies, which fuck the Razzies. But they were not just ignored for making a bad movie. I think they were actively punished for making what everybody said was a flop. And I think that punishment is what scared people. I mean, they go to the junkets and people at the junkets are just telling Barry Sonnenfeld in your face, like, yeah, 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 yeah. When are you going to make Men in Black 2? Don't even try to go down this route. Make us a sequel. And I think that punishment is interesting because i do think it derails them from making more stuff
2: uh, okay i will tell you one other thing for this argument uh it, which is this the same thing happened with fucking avatar and guess what it was great like i mean it was great it was whatever it was but it, like it, like people were like it's gonna suck it's gonna be terrible people were uh, you know uh super aggro about it and um you know and that and, and it worked like, you could make this argument about Ishtar. Like, Ishtar is a movie that everyone was like, it's going to suck. I it's would make and it, this argument and, about and, and Ishtar, Ishtar because and, I
1: think a similar thing happened. I think Elaine Mace didn't get to make more movies I, because of that. I think when we I built agree, something that up was, to a giant bomb, perhaps a bit unfairly, I think it does derail I,
2: careers. I, okay, this is where I'm going to do This is where I disagree with you. Ishtar was built as a bomb, and it's not bad. It's fine. It's, yeah, it's probably better than I'm, fine. But right? we but, are agreeing that it's West the bomb is,
1: aura that we're talking about.
2: But the bomb aura only exists when it's a bomb. Like, I mean, for most, for the most, like Ishtar is a very specific example. I also think there's misogyny in Ishtar, but I would, with her career not working, because Barry Sonnenfeld got a lot more chances. Uh, but I will say, they got a lot of av-
1: chances to make the more money with the sequels. Oh, he didn't Barry get a lot Sonnenfeld- more chances to make a get shorty.
2: Didn't you don't you think that Barry Sonnenfeld like pushing daisies is his get shorty? Don't you think that like the like he's he's Barry Sonnenfeld is like
1: format, though.
2: But I I think that like that's not I wouldn't equate that with like like Barry Sonnenfeld gets to go make cool stuff. Now, whether or not he can complete that stuff is a whole different thing because, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld has been on involved in some of the some giant ass projects that kind of all weirdly fall apart. I just think he gets I think he gets to make a lot of stuff.
1: I mean, we're here to talk about how the summer blockbuster went off the rails, and I think that this is an important moment. Whether or not the movie's bad, I think it's important.
2: Well, maybe I guess what you can say about it is, like, you know, when you spend that much money, that people are going to be a lot more uh, withholding. You know, that movie costs a shitload of money, and they've invested a lot of money in this thing. So maybe studios are like, oh, maybe before we... You know, it was one hundred and seventy million dollars. It still made two hundred and twenty one million, two hundred twenty two million, but one hundred and seventy million dollars. And I'm sure there's a lot of overhead fees and stuff like that. I I guess I just.
1: I mean, that's definitely still a loss the way the studio would count it. Like, have you you seen um, that Ed Solomon on Twitter is still tweeting every year how men in black sends him a profit statement that says they still lost money, that he still never made like his points on it?
2: Well, I mean, that's that's the same way that uh, Peter Jackson had to sue about, uh, yeah. you know, yeah.
1: I mean, his first tweet about it was great. Like, he said, the fact that they've made a fourth one confirms, as I've always said, that the big studios are only in it for the art. Okay, uh, can I get All you right. to agree to the inverse? If Wild Wild West was good, would we still be in a world where they were making, like, nothing but sequels of Men in Black? Like, if it was good, if they had worked okay. it out, could we have expanded the blockbuster at that moment using the really... Generational star power of Will Smith, because I like, get sad that Will Smith is only hold doing on. bad boys movies and like Men in Black movies and hasn't no, figured no, 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 out no, no, how you, to make oh. new blockbusters. No, no, no that okay, are interesting. because I think those movies are great. I'm, Men I'm, in Black,
2: you're dropping a lot. You're dropping a lot of giant swings here. Which is, first of all, Will, Will Smith is man. i swing. But Will Smith's career does not go down because of Wow Wow West. I'm not like, saying
1: down. I'm saying limited he doesn't just, to sequels. Uh, I'm saying limited. What? I'm saying Ellie. limited in scope.
2: Okay, no. It, this no. is
1: different than you're talking about his Oscar movies. This is talking about how one actor has the power... To drive okay. box office. Okay. And well then, when right. that actor gets scared, as he did after Wild Wild West, he felt like it was so bad that he apologized to his fans. Hitch. And I think he does return to the safety of the Men in Black fan franchise. It, it,
2: Hitch. It's a romantic big comedy. summer yes. movie. Yes. Okay. Right. I mean, but I guess. Still. What I guess I was saying is like, okay. Well, let me put your let me put your thing to the test. The year that Wild Wild West comes out, what's the number one movie of the year?
1: Is it Star Wars?
2: Yep sequel. Number two Mm -hmm. movie is Sixth Sense. Number three movie, sequel. Austin Powers, Aspire Shag Me. Number four movie, sequel. Toy Story 2. Number five movie, The Matrix. Number six movie, Tarzan, Big Daddy, The Mummy, Runaway Bride, and The Blair Witch Project. And then 11 is Notting Hill. So if you look at those top 11, most of those are original cool movies. I mean, Sixth Sense, The Matrix, uh, The Mummy, and then you have all these like comedies, but then you have Blair Witch Project. So, like, that's if that's the year that you're saying the blockbuster dies, I'm gonna um, say that's that, the year the
1: blockbuster I'm, goes up. I'm saying it's when we start becoming very sequelized because most of those movies, the big ones, became franchises. Like, okay. we're see, I'm interested in how we're, we stop I'm greenlighting hearing. green ideas and we just okay, start greenlighting well, sequels. And I think this is when it is really, really.
2: Let's look, control, let's, look at, let's look at 2000 then. Because I'm tired of looking at our t- top
1: tens right now and everything has a number behind
2: it. Well, let's look at 2000 then. The year after. Top 10 films. Grinch Stole Christmas. Not, I mean, a redo, right? Mission Impossible 2. And then all original movies. Gladiator. Perfect Storm. Meet the Parents. X-Men. Scary Movie. What Lies Beneath. And Dinosaur. Right? So there, this is like the top 10 movies. Nine of the top 10 movies are not. I'm just. I, I. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying like there's the 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 money behind it doesn't really get into sequels. I don't think. I mean, two thousand one. Yes, a Things place bit.
1: in cycles. I mean, the stuff that they've released in two thousand was already greenlit before ninety nine. So
2: I'm gonna I'm gonna drop something on you. And I think this is. I'm gonna agree with you, but disagree with you and say this. 9-11 caused sequelitis. <laughs> what? The idea that we need to go back to what we're familiar with and what we're comfortable with, like we want comfort food, we want cinema, so everything that comes out in 2002 is sequels, right? So it's like, so is there is there something where you go like, all right, we are now going to only greenlight things that we know are going to be hits, that we know people are going to get behind. It's the same way that we just went through this pandemic and every cast reunited and got together. Because it's like, oh, I want that comfort food. I think that's the reason. And then those movies become so successful that people are like, more of those things. But I think the idea is, what can we do to make, let's bring people back. Let's get people comfortable again. Let's, like, everything is okay. We're okay.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's bonkers, but I would explore that with you.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's not like, look, because in 2002, it's, I just read you two years after uh, Wow! Wow, West, not sequels. Then 2002, almost all sequels, exclusively mm-hmm. sequels.
1: Because I do think of 1999 as a pivotal year, in that to me it was the peak of studios because of the extra money they were getting from DVD sales, which had just really taken off and were suddenly like doubling fortunes for a lot of their hits. Mm-hmm. I think 99 studios had the money to burn. To give a crop of directors big budgets to try some shit. Okay, I'm willing to take a risk. I think they were willing to take risks in 99, and I think that dries up quickly after. But I think that's why 1999 also has a lot of good films. They were willing to put money behind movies that they wouldn't give those budgets to today. Or to directors that they wouldn't give those budgets to today, unless it was property they already owned.
2: Yeah, I think that's I think that's why you're seeing like people like Jason Blum who you know gave M Night a chance to go back and make movies and be a part. of, You know, like you you see these smaller movies that are getting a chance to be bigger movies. I mean, like that whole idea of like what the Blair Witch was and things like that. Like horror yeah. always works on the small. I mean, I scale. love
1: Blair Witch. We should do Blair Witch when we do our horror cycle this year because we're doing horror do. again. We yeah. have to, right? We I, have to. I love we
2: have Blair, Blair Witch. To. But you know, but it's like, also, but yeah.
1: I mean, you could you. We should say that Men in Black, when it was that tiny indie comic. That indie comic company was after after Men in Black was optioned. But before the film came out, that tiny comic company was swallowed up by Marvel. So Men in Black is technically a Marvel film or at least a film that I think had Marvel think to themselves, oh, wow, what kind of money are we sitting on here? And I think it is the success of Men in Black that encourages Marvel to go forth and start pursuing something like Spider-Man, which comes Uh, out in 2002.
2: I will also say one other thing just to go back because I just realized that as we are talking about it too. Your point about go off and make another thing or take chances, I think you could make that argument with Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler pretty much didn't make the same movie, but like Adam Sandler has some highs and lows, right? So, you know, whether it's, you know, um, Big Daddy or Happy Gilmore or Billy Madison or Mr. Deeds or Little Nicky, right? There's highs and lows. There peaks and valleys in the Sandler verse. And, I think why people come back is yes, it is the same thing, but it is also different. Like Little Nicky may not be my favorite Adam Sandler movie, but you know, so some people think like Big Daddy is the best Adam Sandler movie. It might be for them. Like to me, it's it's I would I would say probably Does Billy Madison. Really think Big Daddy is the
1: best. Sandler oh yeah, movie? it's
2: huge. It's really? hu- like it, it's surprisingly huge. How I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson uses that movie for why he cast Adam Sandler in mm-hmm. Punch Drunk Love. But I guess what I'm saying is like, here's somebody who takes some doesn't shake chance. Like he's going back and making different things, not sequels. Right. But he's figured out this way. Like Little Nicky has nothing to do with Mr. Deeds, except for Sandler and that kind of comedy. And there's you're always going to get some version of that. And there's but, something
1: really similar about the Sandler persona in these. Like, sorry, but there is something about the idea of like Sandler having... A boner or any intimate parts with the lady, being a grown man in any sort of a way, is like insane and never happens in his comedies because you can't even figure it out. Like even when he has a comedy where he's like in Hawaii with nine kids, Sandler as a grown man never works. He always has to play himself as like an angry virgin.
2: And well, I mean, I, I would argue that the, I I would say that in his comedies, right? Like that's yeah. like right. But I, but uh, yeah, but I mean, like well, but I guess like any big movie star is serving up the same thing. Will Smith. For as amazing as an actor as he, he is, is giving you what you a, a version of like a, if we if we go like to the big blockbusters or the comedies or, or the action movies, a similar vibe, He's right? the coolest Den, guy in the world. Yeah, Denzel Washington yeah. and all those Tony Scott movies, he's giving you a vibe. Whether it's virtuosity or the Unstoppable movie, you know, Tom Cruise is giving you a vibe. Like you're going, you're not going. Oh wow! Uh, I, I, I mean, I guess in the someday block.
1: I guess, we'll do my uh, entire yes. Tom Cruise rant, but that'll take like
2: months. All right, but I guess like what I'm saying is like part of like I think of a blockbuster star is you're going back to see them. I haven't seen them in a year. What are they up to? What are they? What are they doing now? Like Kevin Hart, well, The Rock. Like yes, they're all different, but they're also the same, right? Like and and there's a there's something exciting about that. It's there's a comfort to, but I think that that's the that's the the trade off that you make when you become a giant blockbuster star. You become, you are yourself. Like it's very rarely do you see a character performance. In from a giant blockbuster star. He's well, that star. is my
1: whole argument about Cruz. Is that he gives right. character performances, but his absolute Cruzness supplants them in our cultural memory, and we don't remember that he's giving a performance even as we're watching it happen.
2: I don't disagree with Tom Cruise being a fantastic actor. I totally think that he is. Uh I, but but I but but I think but you know maybe it is just like the fact that it's like a voice and an act, it's like we just we're used to this guy. Johnny Depp is kind of the person who kind of broke that mold a little bit, you know, by doing these big character characters, but he was a character actor who just happened to fall ass backwards into a giant blockbuster career very late in the game uh oddly. But anyway, all of this is so interesting to me. I don't know what it is and 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 I and I I would have loved to have seen that 21 Jump Street Men in Black crossover that was leaked in the Amy Pascal, Sony hack emails. I think that would have been a great team up. I mean, what great people to in, pull into this world. Uh, you know, the two of them. Uh, I think that would have been really, really fun. But, uh, but you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for this sort of stuff. I love it all.
1: Well, me too. Even though, of course, Men in Black winds up the way that it, it was ordained. Ever since Steven Spielberg said that he thought Indiana Jones was going to be a ride at a theme park. Men in Black is also a ride where you can zap people. I've it been did there. It's great. what it needs to do. I mean, I hear what you're saying in the sameness, like Will Smith, hey, I'll release a song that worked out well, so well for me last year. But actually, that makes me want to say just for a second, I appreciate that the Men in Black song, which was everywhere, and I remember like them rapping and dancing to it before the movie started when I saw it at the theater when this movie came out. I was relieved that that song isn't actually in the movie itself that there's no moment when like Will Smith is doing cool stuff and you hear him rapping over the image of him doing cool stuff they separate yeah. Will Smith the performer from Will Smith the actor and like the song too. doesn't come on until like you get the sentimental stir of music as he's like zapping the brain then you get the pause and then the release woo, woo, woo. It's the
2: Guys black. Remember
3: that, just in case we face face make contact. The title held by me. M-I-B. Means what you think you saw,
1: you Which see. I honestly, top ten theme song, right? I was shocked oh, that it wasn't number one when this came out. I was like, oh man, it really is still like Puff Daddy. But I, I mean, thought the song I, was yeah. bigger, but it wasn't there. It was Elmbach was like ahead of it.
2: I, I do also like the, the sequel song too. Uh, you know, and the only with the, the one is
1: Pitbull? Oh no, that's the no, third one. I like the, the Pitbull one. one.
2: Okay, interesting. I was going to say, the only time uh, that Will Smith has sang the song that he actually wrote for the movie, in the movie, is Legend of Bagger Vance. What? All right, so... No, I'm just joking.
1: (laughs) One of the things that I want to give Men in Black credit for that I think it does so well that I don't think the Marvel films do as well is that sense of humor that I think is in this film, which is like Barry Sonnenfeld as a comedy director. His major rule is that he doesn't like jokes. Like he Mm -hmm. doesn't think jokes work. He thinks anything that pops out is too like hacky hacky, which to me is like half of the quips and something like The Avengers. He hates all that stuff. Like he thinks the only comedy that he wants to put forth is Situational, the comedy of like these people are in a moment and everything that they're reacting to is the situation, like letting the situation take center stage. The way that somebody like Tommy Lee Jones gets a big joke just from introducing the two of the people who work at Men in Black headquarters, the twins.
4: Observation, the heart of our little endeavor. I meet the twins and Bob.
1: That to Barry Sonnenfeld is the humor that he believes in holding court in a movie that is all based in, like, CGI craziness, a world that could feel completely unreal. A delivery like that, so perfect, you know, is what works for him. And I adore this type of comedy because, to me, it feels real. I always get mad when the Avengers are, like, blowing stuff up, but then they take, like, a moment to be like, Hulk has a fat ass or whatever the sort of things they think are funny in, like, the giant team-up movies. That, to me, doesn't work, like, the cocky, funny humor. But this is a masterclass. And so I just want to compliment it because I want... If we're going to have blockbusters, I like this humor. I think it's a really good balance to all of the gizmos that are flying through the air.
2: I totally agree. And I think that that's why this movie, we talked about it early on, like these little moments uh, stick out to us. And I think, you know, all good comedy directors don't want you to be leaning into like, joke, joke. You know, you can be making jokes. But it's, it is about character and perspective and you know Mike Nichols had a whole thing a list of rules backstage at like spam a lot that basically broke down like what not to do like how to do a comedy and uh and you're right like I think that Barry Sonnenfeld has I think Barry Sonnenfeld is very visually uh, interesting and I think that he I think that he can ground these characters. They're they're more interesting. Like I, I know J and K. Like I get them. I know who they are. And they are a little bit more um, nuanced than I think you would see now. I haven't again I've have not seen Men in Black International, so I'm not gonna say that it was unfairly maligned or uh it was uh rightfully so. But I but I think that like it does take that kind of hand. I think the same way we talked about Steven Spielberg developing these characters in Jurassic Park. I think what we're coming back to time and time again is like, I like these characters. These characters are smart. They're competent. They're good at what they do.
1: That tangibility, that's the word that you used early on. And that's like a word that I think is really important in all of it. I mean, Barry Sonnenfeld said, even making fun of a Hulk movie. He's like, I hate it when you see a movie and like Hulk is in the foreground and he's perfectly in focus. And the Golden Gate Bridge is behind him and it's also perfectly in focus. He's like, that doesn't happen in these spectacle movies that give you too much, it switches off something in your brain that allows you to accept that this is real. He was like, in my movies, the focus will always be how the focus should be as though this was happening in the real world because it's these subliminal cues that add up to an audience and make them believe in what they're saying. You know, that yeah. what you're seeing is a real movie. And weirdly, like up until the movie came out, he kept insisting to the producers as much as they were like getting light, you know, lunchbox franchises. He kept telling them like, this is not a big movie to me. This is a small movie. This is a movie about two guys and how they get along. And like you can sell it this way, but this is not the movie I have made. I have made a small movie that exists in a giant universe as you're marketing it. I and I, th- I think he really like held true to that
2: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
1: by the way, like bring it back to i d four just for one second. I keep on i d four Independence Day. Yeah. um Steven Spielberg, who I think, is the ghost who haunts all of these things. I mean, Getting Will Smith to sign on to this movie, you know, putting all of these gears in motion, forming himself into the biggest director on earth, even though he'd been, you know, trying to kind of leave it before Jurassic Park, doing his Schindler's lists. He kind of pays these pilgrimage visits to everybody who's following in his footsteps, making giant blockbusters in the 90s. And after Independence Day comes out, um, he goes to that set and he tells the producers, he tells like Roland Emmerich, you know, I want you to pre- be prepared. Because right now, everybody is celebrating your movie. But a year from now, they're only going to focus on how much money that you made. And they're going to somehow think that your movie was not as good because it made so much money. But know now that you made a good movie. And Emric said that, yeah, like every year, they had always gone to Sundance and thrown a big party at Sundance. And then that year, they went to Sundance, and they threw their big party, and everybody treated them like lepers. Which wow. lepers, I guess, gives me a segue to say that in a way, none of this is new. Because remember when we talked about Ben-Hur? When Ben Hur came out in the 50s, that is a movie that was licensed to death. That had, like, chewing gum and perfume and trading cards. None of this is new. It's just exhausting.
2: No, I think it's a constantly, look, there's always going to be this issue. And I think if you read that book about the Sony hack, um, I forget the name of it right now. But the Sony hack book was really interesting because Sony, you know, there's these studios. And this is maybe, I'm I'm digesting what you've been saying a lot, too, which is, like, Studios realize it's not about making a profit. It's about making a profit worldwide. It's not about quality. It's about, it is about these deals. And Sony very much so was at the forefront of that. And that was one of the issues that they had with Amy Pascal. Amy Pascal believed in creators and projects and people. And so she would back Adam Sandler. She would back George Clooney. She would back Jonah Hill. She would back all these, Seth Rogen, these people that she got with them on a creative level. And Sony is a, worldwide corporation who's like, no, 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 more Spider-Man, more this, more big, big, big because we can translate it like things won't travel like Michael Crichton is a great movie but who gives a shit I need to make I need to make Oceans, you know, whatever. Not that the Oceans 11 is like the biggest movie of all time but the idea that like you always have to make bigger, bigger stuff and that this idea like Yes, Marvel is the death of movies, if you want to like have that thing. But I would say that studios, multinational studios, are the death of movies because they're not worried about making movies or making making a bottom line. And when you look at, you know, why there's a bunch of sequels, it's because of IP. It's simply because of IP. It's because like oh we we understand that we can sell that. I already know that. You know, it's Coca Cola is the most famous brand that you can see around the world. I remember being in like in this in a fucking village. Uh, outside of Dakar in Northern Africa and seeing a Coca-Cola logo. I'm like, fuck. You know, so I think this idea that, like, I'm not here to bang the drum that, like, it's we're running out of ideas. It really is the mandate is different. The mandate, studios used to be run by people who gave, gave a shit. And now it's, and when you had a hit, you had a hit. And now it's like, no, 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 these are things to be made to have profit.
1: Yeah. I mean, when my friend and I were talking about Space Jam too this weekend, He made a point of like correcting himself and not calling it a Warner Brothers film, but then like going Time Warner, which is owned by. And he just started calling it an AT&T film Uh. because it is at at the end of the day, you know, an AT&T product. And I'm. If those films are able to still make money and make room for other good films, I'm not going to hate them just for existing, but I'm hoping to figure out ways that they can be encouraged to at least make better ones, you know?
2: Well, yeah, but that's why you have A24. That's why you have Blumhouse. That's why you have all these, you know, you have Netflix. You have, you know, but even Netflix, I think, falls under that multinational thing. Um, but it's like, that's why you have these smaller studios, you know. uh yeah, what's but they the don't one? have
1: blockbuster money. They can't yeah, greenlight but, but, a giant film.
2: Well, I guess it, the question is, is like, but they can make a movie that makes a lot of money. Yeah, but like that are that is, that can things. be a, Right. I, yeah, yeah, I guess, but I guess, but as a blockbuster, I guess to me, a blockbuster is to who has seen it versus how much money was spent on it. Like, yes, I get it. Like, oh, that's a big blockbuster. I have to go see that in the theater. But I would say, I would if you were to ask me, I would rather be in the movie that everyone loves and that they saw versus the movie that had the biggest budget behind it.
1: No, totally. But I think in the genre that we're talking about, that's part of it. Right. I mean, there's a reason why we're talking about Men in Black and not... My Big Fat Great right. Wedding, you know, huge summer right. profit maker. But you don't really call it a blockbuster.
2: Right, yeah. So I guess, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, uh, we really went down the rabbit hole here. But I think it's good because this movie is actually very interesting about where sequels are going. And, and we can as we kind of move around, I think we're going to, you know, this is, I think, a very nice a bookend to Jurassic Park and where the future goes. Maybe we can end the series on a more modern uh, sequel. but uh, We can, but- although
1: weren't you struck in this watch that, For all of the patting on the back the Marvel movies do about diversifying their characters and like, oh, congrats, now we are able to have like Anthony Mackie play Captain America. Here is a movie from 1997 where the movie ends with like the only white guy retiring and the franchise, at the end of this at least, pretending to be taken over by Linda Fiorentino and Will Smith by a woman and by a black actor.
2: Yeah, and then when the sequel comes...
1: Yeah, and he like can't find another good partner, and like Tommy Lee Jones has to come back. But it made me think that we have been circling around having the same conversation forever, Mm -hmm. and Marvel didn't start it. That's all.
2: Okay, there you go. Gotta get that dig in on Marvel. No, I do have Uh... to get that dig in on
1: Marvel because this is a movie that I think deals with race in kind of subtle ways. I mean, that there's that running joke where Tommy Lee Jones keeps introducing themselves to people, and he comes up with like crazy last names for himself, like I'm Agent Manheim but the only last names he can ever think of for Will Smith are either white or black. It's always about color to him and Will Smith just looks at him, but they, the film doesn't make a big deal of it, but it's the stealthy way of having an old school mentality in the center of the film, even though it's not like Tommy Lee Jones is an asshole, but it's like a limited mindset.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thought
1: I like that, that was just interestingly done.
2: So Amy, uh, obviously this movie is a giant hit. I mean, it spawns, you know, multiple, multiple sequels, but, uh, did, were there people out there who didn't like it?
1: There were. Uh, not a ton, but there were a few. One of them is my beloved Owen Glierman, then writing for Entertainment Weekly. He said, Ah-hem. Blockbusters used to take us by surprise. Not anymore. The popularity of today's summer movie, Blitzkriegs, is all but preordained by marketing onslaughts, media coverage, and advanced word of mouth that effectively turns the audience into an extension of the advertisement hype complex. When the picture itself arrives, it's with all the spontaneity of a national holiday. Yet it isn't just publicity overkill that makes movies like Independence Day, The Lost World, or this year's July 4th Supernova Men in Black into ready-made insta-events. The films themselves are as reassuringly digestible and forgettable as fast food. Men in Black is a comedy of facetiousness in which facetiousness consumes everything in its path, including the movie. The joke of Men in Black is that aliens have arrived and they're not monsters, they're pests. And in throwaway absurdity, the picture mirrors the ironic nonchalance of 90s America, a place that feels, or at least wants to feel, that it has neutered most of its enemies. A spooky sci fi grab bag, Men in Black combines the anthropomorphic kitty ghoulishness of the Star Wars bar scene with the blase showbiz hipsterism of Ghostbusters. And after a while, the nonstop blitheness begins to make everything seem strangely inconsequential.
2: Hmm. All right. I mean, I don't know if I totally agree, but, uh, but you know, obviously, I think it's good to have your opinions. I mean, you, you know, it's... And he's saying even...
1: all the digs that I would say to a blockbuster film, except I want to be like, this one, this one's better, though. Like, I want yeah, to that's... whine because I like this one. Everything he's saying is true, but I like this one, so I want to defend it. What really struck me is him talking about how this movie comes out in 90s America, a place that feels almost apolitical, you know, in a moment between wars, between... When, according to Paul Scheer, 9-11 happened and cinema changed forever. Uh, like, to to put this in that context, I hadn't thought of it in that way. Like, I was thinking about it. Like, we were talking so a lot about borders and immigration and this being a movie that says, in essence, immigration is fine. We're not here to blast all the aliens like we did in Independence Day. We're here to, I guess, I guess you could say, like, assimilate them into our American way of life and let them have jobs as long as they're not right. running illegal guns. But. In America, this is an America that believes in a melting pot. In the nineties, yeah. Um, And I, I don't know. It, I appreciate the lack of innate hostility in this film for a blockbuster.
2: I agree. I think they both of these movies share a lot of DNA. Jurassic Park and this, and I think it's. If we could have more movies like this, we would all be happier and excited because they feel very different and new. And I think that if any dig on either of these movies, are their sequels lessen their original uh, shine? You know, they're not as good. They're just simply not as good. So Amy, but would you, you know, would you like to offer up an opinion about Men in Black going into space? Because there's a question, and this is again on the Discord that someone brought up, like what's a good movie and what's a movie that deserves to be you know, seen as the ultimate. Like, you know, we are blasting up the space, the best of the best. Now, all these movies are crowd pleasers, but are they the best of the best? So for that, I'll quickly answer and say, I don't think that Men in Black goes in outer space. I love it. I I already feel like I'm gonna, you know, there's there's arguments to be made here, but I I don't feel like it's one of those movies.
1: Yeah, I will say what I want is for Men in Black to be like, piped into the pipeline of the houses of every person greenlighting blockbusters right now so they can remind themselves that you don't have to make something profitable that isn't good Mm yeah i i admire this film a lot more than i was expecting to and so for that i say thank you for being a fantastic blockbuster like can i just say thank you instead of blasting up to space by the way did you recognize the callback even in the opening credits? You know the opening credits in a movie that is like so c g are weirdly hand drawn mhm, same font, same designer as dr Strangelove
2: well, you know and that and that kind of ties into how this movie was even inspiring performances like uh D'Onofrio's performance uh in this film,
1: yeah, 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 him taking his voice from George C. Scott and also with a little bit of uh of um. Houston in, Jack, in uh, Chinatown mixed in. There's a little bit of John Houston in there too.
2: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, well, Amy, we're going to continue, uh, I guess, looking at blockbusters. But instead of going into the future, maybe we'll go back to the past because you all picked Back to the Future. Back to the Future over Roger Rabbit. It was close, like 57 to, you know, like I'm doing the math real quick, 42, uh, 43.
1: We put forth a Zemeckis off. Since we have done Contact, but we thought we didn't do the films that are most Zemeckis, that we think of as Zemeckis films. His like big, 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 technical heavy, uh, massive crowd pleasers. And the obvious two to me had to either be Back to the Future or Roger Rabbit.
2: And there's a lot of love for Roger Rabbit, but Back to the Future is the one that kind of edges it out. And I would argue that Back to the Future is the one that I think you know, continues... I mean, both of these movies continue in very interesting ways to tell stories about, like, original blockbusters with cool characters that have, uh, obviously, elements of sci-fi. They both do. Uh, But that doesn't mean that because we didn't do Roger Rabbit in the series that we won't do Roger Rabbit. We're just going to Uh, go with what the uh, what the group consensus is right now and the group consensus is Back to the Future which is available wherever you get your uh, movies streamed or rented or whatever you want to do and Amy I cannot wait to watch Back to the Future with you yet again Uh, I cannot wait
3: Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future a Robert Zemeckis film Marty leads an ordinary life no McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley history is going to change and 1985 is not his year, but Dr. Brown is about to change all that.
5: Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean?
3: He's sending Marty 30 years ah! back in time. It works! It's a floating saucer from outer space! Now he's trapped in the past. It's gotta be a dream. About to meet yeah, Chocolate his future father. He's a baby. Tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. Ah. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Ah! Now he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. Out loud. I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown. <laughs> Can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future.
1: I love it. And with that said, if everybody can take out your cell phones right now, take a look at the screen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled.
2: Unspooled.
1: I'm Amy Nicholson.
2: And I am Paul Shear.
1: And we're about to talk Men
2: in Black.